Thank you, Miss Suhan. And good morning again, everyone. All right, good to have everybody out this morning. Let's see here. Children's Church, Dave and Angie will have that. So 12 and under, anybody like to go over for Children's Church, encourage you to go ahead for that. And while they're heading over, if you want to go ahead and mark in your hymnals, 171, I Must Tell Jesus, we'll use that as our hymn of invitation this morning. Certainly uh, good, again, to, to be here uh, with you this morning. Good to have everybody. We have uh, visitors. Good to have you as visitors with us. And uh, certainly if you're logging into Facebook uh, or onto YouTube later, we're happy to have you with us anytime. We want to welcome you uh, as well uh, to our services and invite you to come out anytime you have the opportunity to do that. Uh, it's always a privilege for me to share God's Word with you. And, uh, that's no uh, different today, and certainly as we draw closer to the day we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, that is so. It's my hope that these past sermons and this particular sermon series has jogged our memories as to what actually went on that day there at Calvary. Uh, the religious leaders and the Romans had purposed this event to be a mockery of the supposed king, king of the Jews, the people and even the criminals, if we recall, joined in on this mockery. Today is Palm Sunday and, and that is the day that Jesus made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. The people welcomed him as they welcomed King David, waving palm fronds and throwing their cloaks and other items on the ground so that this king of the Jews could be entered and honored into Jerusalem as their king. What a difference a week makes if we go back and think about what we've looked at with this mockery, the lack of mercy that was shown to Jesus, the contempt for his work. But yet we know that one of the thieves, one of the people that had been taking uh, place uh, or been taking part of the mockery and such, he, he had that moment of clarity, if we recall last week, that he came to his senses and he realized who he was hanging there next to, the Son of God. And we know that because of that, he was granted to be in paradise with Jesus. As he said, today you will be with me in paradise. No mercy was shown. We know that Jesus' mother and at least one disciple and some of his other followers were there at the cross at Calvary. There's no mention of anything that they say, and I suppose with the mood of the crowd as we've determined, they probably for fear of being punished themselves, for fear of some type of reprisal, they kept their mouths closed, and I understand that. But I just want us to set the scene at Calvary and to be reminded that he was crucified at 9 a.m. in the morning and for three hours he endured that mockery that ridicule to be told to come down off the cross if you are the son of God save yourselves and us if we recall we looked last week at that grace and that mercy shown that criminal as he confessed Christ, as they were both hanging there, dying. And today, this Palm Sunday, 
we will continue to look at the events as told by Luke about Friday, this coming Friday, in fact. So if you would, turn with me again back in your Bibles to Luke 23. You'll be very familiar with Luke 23, hopefully. We're going to look at verses 44, 45, and 46. The bulk of our sermon is going to come from these three short verses, but there's a lot that goes on, and a lot of times we don't take a, a lot of time to study about what these verses mean and what they're teaching us. But Luke records, starting in verse 44, and it was about the sixth hour, and there was a darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. And the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was rent in the midst. And when Jesus has cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And having said thus, he gave up the ghost. So we've seen them mock the Son of God for three hours. We've seen them show him no mercy. And today what we will witness in these three verses is that God the Father comes to Calvary. Then came the Father is the name of this sermon. And because that's what we're witnessing. Jesus, up to this point for those three hours and the hours preceding that, when he was in, on trial, was by himself. You know, when they were in the Garden of Gethsemane, he had the disciples until his arrest, and then they took him, and, and he was by himself as far as friendly uh, company. He had endured this mocking and, and ridicule for three hours while being hung on the cross by himself up until just the moment that the criminal said, do you not understand that this is Jesus, the Son of God? That's me paraphrasing, of course. And then God shows up at noon at 12 o'clock. You see, Calvary's more about the wrath of God than it is anything else. Yes, it's human cruelty. We've discussed that and understand it. It's injustice at its very worst. I think we've determined that. But it's also the expression of sacrificial love at its best, as Jesus hangs there. It says, we commemorate each and every Sunday. But the most important thing that happens at Calvary and what has the most meaning for us and what we can understand the most and sometimes what we study the least is that it is God's coming to Calvary and God's wrath. Nine o'clock on Friday morning, Jesus was crucified. That's nine o'clock this Friday coming. Nine a.m. in the morning. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, if you have... If you can, take a moment at 9 o'clock on Friday and remember, remember that it was at that time that they were crucifying our Lord and Savior. This is called the Holy Week. It's celebrated and observed in many different ways. We don't typically do anything special in our uh, church. But I think that we should always allow our minds to be directed to the events of the Holy Week. And 9 o'clock on Friday morning is one of those times. So I encourage you to do that. Just to take just a moment and reflect upon what that event so long ago means to you. 
for the first three hours, the people, the rulers, the soldiers, even the criminals, they dominated the scene, if we recall. Blasphemy, ridicule, sneering, scorn, sarcasm, mockery, with the exception, of course, of the criminal that accepted him. All of that ends at noon. And if you notice in your scriptures, and if you look at all of the gospel writers, it, it all supports that. It ends at noon. It, oddly enough, and some of you won't be surprised, I'm reminded by a scene out of a western tombstone when Wyatt Earp confronts Ike Clanton at the railroad station. And Ike is trying to sneak up on him and Wyatt Earp comes up from behind and knocks him to the ground and sticks a shotgun in his face and says, you called down the thunder. Well, now you've got it. And that's what's happening here. For three hours, the people of, of Jerusalem, the Romans, the, the, the leaders, the people, they've been calling down the thunder and mockering and mockery of the, the Son of God, telling him to save himself and others if he was the Son of God, the Holy One of God. They were mocking God. They were calling down the thunder. And now at noon, they've got it. Because that's what we witness here in these scriptures. We witness the full wrath, the full fury of God the Father. They'd had their three hours, and it was over. And when it was over, it was really over. God took center stage. Verse 44 says that it was about the sixth hour. That would be noon. The Jewish day begins at 6 o'clock in the morning. I've got a, a, a clock up here. Get up to the, uh, there we go. Six, uh, the Jewish day begins at 6 o'clock, ninth hour is when he was crucified. Or we see that. So, Twelfth uh, hour, it was dark. Or 12, rather, the, ninth, the sixth hour, it was dark. Jewish days varied in length, the hour, rather, according to the time of the year. But the sixth hour was always midday. Sun at its highest point. Jesus had been there for three hours. All of the events, and that's sometimes we don't think about that, all of the events that we studied and we think about and we've seen that had happened for the past two or three weeks happened in that three-hour span. And then what happens? Darkness fell on the earth. Some of your translations may say land, but rest assured, darkness fell. Some people claim it's an eclipse. That's not possible because an eclipse of the sun only happens during a new moon. Easter is based off of the, fir the first full moon after the spring equinox, which is on the 21st. That's how it's set, and it's the following Sunday after the first full moon. If you noticed last night or tonight, if we can see, it's a full moon. So it's not possible it's an eclipse that happened on the earth that day that Jesus was crucified. And it's not the first time that God had called the land, caused the land to go dark either, if we recall. Because we know for a fact they were celebrating Passover. Do we recall what Passover was being celebrated because of? Remember? It was because they were being freed from Egypt, remember? 
God had caused the ten plagues to come upon the land and, and all of the sacrificial lamb and the, and the blood of the lamb on the post and the lintel of the home. God would pass over your household. Do we remember one of the ten plagues? Darkness. If you don't remember, it's in Exodus 10, verses 21 through 23. And listen to this. And the Lord said unto Moses, Stretch out thine hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, even darkness which may be felt. So dark, the absence of light so thick, it could be felt. And Moses stretched forth his hand toward heaven, and there was a thick darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. Which we're going to discover here, it was for three hours. But three days. Now listen to this description. They saw not one another, neither rose any from his place for three days, but all the children of Israel had light in their dwellings. That's dark. When it is so dark, you can't see anything. When it's so dark, you can't move about. That's the description of the darkness that when Moses stretched forth his hand, his rod toward heaven and caused it to be dark upon the land of Egypt, it's that kind of dark and it's that kind of dark now when it goes dark at Calvary. No light, no moon, no stars, no reflective light of, the, of a city. It is dark. Remember 12 o'clock noon in springtime, sun straight up. Because noon is always when the sun's at its apex. There would have been plenty of light until that time. Instantly black. And I could just imagine the people, the look on their faces, if you could see the, the look on their faces. Because they would not have been unfamiliar with darkness being associated with God. Joel writes about it. Zephaniah writes about it. And if you look back whenever God made the covenant with Abraham or Abram at that point, it was, he was talking about your darkness and terror would be during that time as he was told to divide up the animals and place them so so that they would have the covenant. So they would be familiar with darkness and God and judgment because when Joel wrote about it, it was the great day of the Lord, which is always associated with judgment for the Jew. So darkness would have been associated with this judgment. Not only divine presence, but in judgment, final judgment. They knew this. They knew what was happening. They knew what was going on. Rob, how do you know? How do you know that they knew? Look down in verse 48. I'm getting a little ahead of ourselves into next week, but look into verse 48 and what does it say there? And all the people that came together to that site, beholding the things which were done, smote their breast and returned. They left beating their breast. And for a Jew, that's a sign of distress, fear, anguish. They knew what was happening. Because there they were, and as we'll find out in a little more in detail, they were there for three hours in total pitch black darkness. They knew the only way that that was going to happen was because of God. And they knew from the teachings before that was God's judgment, just like they were celebrating the freedom from Pharaoh in Egypt. They knew. 
They knew what was happening. The main character is now God. And he's taking center stage. God arrived in Calvary, not in light, but in darkness. And he showed, to, showed up to unleash judgment against the only godly one there, his son, Jesus. Not against the ones that deserved it. Not against the ones that were mocking him over the course of the past three hours. And that's where we can see and go into a little deeper understanding about what really happened here. Because it's beyond the physical suffering and it's beyond the sacrifice of Christ. What's happening here is divine wrath. And it's being poured out in its final form. So what we can say here is that God brought hell to Jerusalem that day. God brought hell to Mount Calvary for three hours. Matthew 25, 30 says this. If you want to turn with me in your Bible, should have it up on the screen. We remember this teaching once I read it. It'll bring to mind. And cast ye the unprofitable servant into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Outer darkness. Again, it's this kind of darkness. The total absence of any light. So from noon till three o'clock, hell came to Jerusalem. God showed up in his wrath. And again, not on the Romans, not on the Jewish leaders, not on the people that were mocking, but on his son as our savior. Hell came there. And what is hell? Well, hell is where God punishes people forever. Hell's where God pours out his fury on people forever. We don't like to think about that, but it is forever, this punishment, this fury. And God is the power behind the punishment of hell. We think about Satan. Oh, Satan's dominion is his hell. No, Satan's destiny is hell. God, domain, his, his domain just as well. He's the one that created it for those who disobeyed. And Satan is the chief of princes there. He's the one. God is the one that is able to destroy both body and soul. Remember what Jesus said? Not to fear people that could just destroy your body, but just to fear those that could destroy your body and soul and hell. That's what we're talking about here. That's what we're talking about, hell. God is the punisher of souls in hell. And he shows up at Calvary in the darkness to punish his son. And he gives his son eternal hell for us. So that we might not have to experience that hell when we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior. That's what's going on at Calvary right now for these three hours. This is the cup. We remember Jesus being in the garden anticipating, he says, Father, this cup, well, we'll just look, Luke twenty-two forty-two. Instead of me trying to paraphrase it, let me just read it. Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. That's the cup that he was wanting removed. Is this anticipating hell coming at the 
cross of Calvary. And you don't think he didn't stress over this? You don't think there wasn't a lot of agony? Look down in verse 44. Look down in verse 44 at what Jesus. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly and with his sweat was as it were great drops of blood falling down to the ground. You can't get in more agony. You can't be in more stress or distress than what Jesus is in right now at the thought of the thing that we're looking at right now. The events from 9 till 3 on Friday. The agony. He asked his father to remove it. But if he couldn't remove it, whatever your will is, God, whatever your will is, Father, so be it. That didn't mean he didn't have anguish over it. But one thing we can do, we can rest assured that there was no sneering. There was no scorning. There was no mocking. There was no blaspheming. There was no taunting going on. Not now. That had all was before, and that ended at noon. No one said a thing during these three hours, not even Jesus. None of the gospel writers records that anything was said during the period of darkness. Nothing. Silence. Black silence is what we see going on at Calvary right now. Jesus suffers this eternal hell during these three hours for all that would believe. And here, this is where he is bearing his body for our sins. This is where, as Isaiah said, he was made sin, for, you know, who knew no sin. This is where this is going on. This is where he was wounded for our transgressions. This is where he was crushed for our iniquity. That's what we're witnessing in these three short verses. Three hours of the wrath of God he is enduring here. Turn with me to Mark 15, verse 33. And when the sixth hour was come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Then the light returns. Look on down in 34. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Which is being interpreted, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And how are we to understand this? How is it that we can understand this? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he's already endured three hours of hell. I think, as I've studied and, and read, that he's expecting a little comfort. The darkness has fallen over the land. People are silent in fear. They're locked up. They're not moving anywhere. He's experiencing all the wrath. And then suddenly the sun shines again and there's no comfort. God, why have you forsaken me? I've endured this wrath. I've endured all the sin. I've endured all the punishment for the sin for all the people. Where is my comfort? That's what I hear in this. It reminds me of a scripture where Jesus said in Matthew 7, 22, verse 23. Many will say unto me that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, in thy name cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? 
And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. This, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Whereas the comfort is a reminder to us about hell. That God's presence will be there, but he will not be there to comfort. He will not be there for sympathy. He will not be there to help things be better in hell. He will be there to punish. And therefore Jesus' punishment for us was not quite over. He still felt that separation from God. The comfort of God. Just like those people were disappointed. Lord, Lord, have we not done many wonderful things? Cast out devils in your name, signs and works. I've done all the stuff that I'm supposed to do. Haven't I? I never knew you. Whew. I don't want to be there. I don't want to be there. But much more went on. That's not the end of it. Look now in verse 45, Luke 23. And the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple rent in the midst, or was torn in two. And sometimes you read that, and you just might just zip right over it. But there's a lot of meaning to that description, that the veil of the temple was rent in the midst. Think about this. It's been dark for three hours, pitch black. Nobody could see the hand in front of their face. They've been standing around for three hours, not able to move, not off of the hill, wherever they were standing when it went dark, they were standing there at three o'clock. Now we just think about that being the case at Mount Calvary. That's not the case. It was all over the land, I think all over the earth. So all the hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people in Jerusalem stopped in their tracks. All of the priests preparing to do the Passover sacrifices, which would have been taking place during this time, but they had to stop because they couldn't see their hand in front of their face. All of the priests and all of the people and all of the Romans, everyone across the whole land had stopped, delayed in their activities for the Passover for three hours. Man, we're behind. We're going to have to really work hard to catch up. And then all of a sudden, light comes back. People begin to, and you can imagine being in solid dark for three hours. You take a, a, a while for your eyes to adjust. But what is the sound that they hear at the temple? The giant ripping sound of a veil being torn that covers the Holy of Holies. Now there's 13 sheets or veils inside the temple. This is being the most important one over the Holy of Holies, which separates man from God. Only the high priest was allowed to enter into that once a year to sprinkle blood, do his job, and get out. And that was it. That was the access to God up until this day at Calvary. And when light came back, the veil was ripped and that access was opened up to all people. And I'm not even mentioned to think about the chaos. 
I mean, think about it. Even today, what if we... Three hours of total pitch black darkness at noon, which is in about five minutes. Now imagine in five minutes it goes pitch black. You can't see the person sitting next to you. You can't see your hand in front of your face. You can't see to walk out of this building safely. And that lasts for three hours. If it lasts for five minutes, we could probably get by with that. But it lasts for three hours. On the most important weekend of your religion. When people from all over the world, all over the region, were crammed into your city. I'd say chaos was a very light term. Very light term. So the activation of the new covenant didn't happen until Jesus died on the cross. And then God split, threw open that access by the splitting of the temple, the, the curtain in the Holy of Holies. You know what else that meant? Now think about what I just said. I know I've said a lot. So here we have all the priests and all the people preparing for their sacrifices, all the animals being there to be sacrificed, all of the offerings that's being made, all of the old covenant going on, being taken place right at their very eyes. All of a sudden, light comes back on, the veil rips, and all of that is obsolete. Do we get it? Once that access, once that veil is torn, all of the old system is obsolete. Because that's what Jesus just endured the last three hours for. Because they were going to sacrifice lambs that could never take away sin. But they had themselves crucified the one lamb that will take away the sin for everyone. So all of that system was obsolete when the light came back on. They didn't get it. Remember Jesus said not one stone would be left upon another. They thought that that meant physically. That was the system. He was talking about dismantling the whole system, not necessarily a building. Of course, we know in A.D. 70, the Romans did a fine job of that, and we still see the results of that today. But Jesus was talking about dismantling all of that system of sacrifice, all that system of burden, all that system of laws. Remember, he whittled it down to two. Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, thy soul, thy mind, and your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these, he said. He dismantled the whole system. And that, that tearing of the veil opened it up at that point. We all have access to God now. And at that same moment, there's more. Matthew 27, verse 51. Twenty-seven, verse fifty-one. I'll get there. And behold, as Matthew records, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake, and the rocks rent. The earth quake shook with such great force it split rock. Now we know a little, just we really don't know enough about earthquakes to say we know about earthquakes here. Because occasionally you'll, you might, if you happen to be really paying attention, feel the ground shake. We had one, I think, last week down at Barbell. It was the epicenter just 
south of Barberville. I never felt it. They said it couldn't be felt very far. The earth shook with such violence, it split rocks. I don't know what that would be, eight, nine, on a Richter scale. So here we have all this darkness. Here we have the light coming back on, people trying to get their bearings about themselves. They hear the veil tearing in the temple. The earth is quaking. Rocks are splitting. And if you don't think people aren't really panicked by now, you're fooled sorely. Because if it's powerful enough to split rocks, it's powerful enough for everyone in that country to feel God's wrath with the earth shaking. They would be associating again with earthquakes with God's wrath on the great and terrible day of the Lord of judgment. So we can see that this is God's wrath coming down upon people. God's fury, again, not against religious leaders, not against the Jews, not against the Romans or the people, but his own son. So God is there at Calvary and he's present in judgment. Matthew goes on to record in 27. Look at verse 52 and 53. Of course, he gets a little ahead of himself in this statement. And the graves were opened up, and many bodies of the saints which slept arose and came out of the graves after his resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared unto many. So on Sunday, after Jesus is resurrected, Graves open up, people, the saints, go from the graves into the city of Jerusalem and testifying about Jesus' resurrection power. And if that wasn't enough that what went on Friday, that really, really drove the point home on Sunday. That witnesses were there telling about the power of Jesus Christ's resurrection. To say these people were in shock. I mean, ultimately... We thought we had shock and awe back in the early 2000s. That's shock and awe. That is shock and awe. Dark, quake, tearing, saints rising up out of the grave, going and testifying in the power of Jesus Christ. That's shock and awe. Kind of makes them look silly now. All that mockery and taunting and ridicule they did of Jesus Christ, doesn't it? I wonder how it made them feel. Well, remember what Matthew said when the light came back on, what was they doing? They were going down the hill, beating their breast. Oh, my, we've done it now. That's what they were saying, because they had. Turn with me over to John 19, 28. So all of this happens. Earth quaking, dark, comes back to light. Temple veil being rent. After this, John records, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. I thirst. I would imagine so. And I'm not making light of it. Let's think about what he just went through. Three hours of hell from noon till three. Being crucified, the most traumatic event to a human body that we can invent to where you die by suffocation. And remember that, or asphyxiation actually would be the proper word. But remember that because it's going to be important here in just a minute. 
He's been with six hours without drinking anything. Remember, he, they offered it to him. He refused. And now he says, I thirst. I thirst. Showing his human side again. So that things will be fulfilled. And John also says that, that once he realized that all things were accomplished, it was like, whew, it's over. I'm thirsty. And that's what it was like. I'm thirsty. And they offer him that sour wine. That cheap wine is what it really is. Vinegar, some, some of your references may say. But it's just a really cheap wine that they give to the lower ranking members of the military. As their drink. And that's what happens. We see the human side. And then what happens? Look down in verse 30 of John. And when Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. What's finished? The new covenant is finished. All of the work that had been, all of the things that he'd been sent there to do, at that point was finished. The veil had been ripped. Access had been given. The old system dismantled. The new system put into place. You had the disciples ready to go out and spread the gospel and, and to bring people in and to begin to build the new church, the new way, the new covenant. It was finished. And that's what we see him saying. It is finished. Now back to Luke 23 with me. And we see Jesus' final words. Luke 23, verse 46. And when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And having said thus, he gave up the ghost. What kind of voice did Jesus cry out that he was commending his spirit into the hands of his Father? Then the scriptures tell us with a loud voice, Remember, how long has he been hanging up there like this? Do you remember the description that I used? To take a breath, he would have to push up on the nails, pull up on the spikes, breathe, and then relax. Didn't sound like he had any trouble saying anything there, did he? Because it says he cried with a loud voice. We remember what Jesus said? That no man taketh his life, he lay it down of his own accord. That's a paraphrase by me. Remember that? That sounds like to me that someone that was laying down their life of their own accord, not that someone had taken their life because you died of asphyxiation. In other words, you were not able to breathe in sufficient oxygen to sustain life. Jesus just cried out with a loud voice. That, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. So here we see Jesus the perfect, sinless, righteous sufferer of death with his last breath expresses perfect trust in God the Father. The promiser receiving his son. What a day. What a glorious day we witness whenever we read these scriptures out of Luke. When we see how that all of God's plan is manifest, all the things that had to take place did take place. And then God shows up at Calvary in judgment when the darkness falls. But when there is light, once again, there is hope. There is a new covenant. There is a new way. 
And that's what we see. How do you read this? How do you hear sermons about this and not respond in some way? How does it not evoke a response in the human being? I can't see how it does it. And I guess that probably frustrates preachers more than anything. When you hear, when people, you know they hear, but they don't respond. But that's where we are this morning. That's where we are at this very moment in time. I have detailed for the past three or four weeks the very deep, most minute details of the cross and the God's plan and providing salvation to each and every one that would call upon his name and accept him. And we must respond. We either reject Jesus Christ as Lord or Savior or we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. That's the response. And if you're here today without him, I encourage you to accept Christ. There is no other alternative. There is no other name by which man must be saved except the name of Jesus. Hearing, believing, repenting of your sin, confessing Jesus Christ as your Savior, being buried with Him in baptism, raise the new creature. You've received the gift of the Holy Spirit and the forgiveness of sins. Walk forward, serve God to your best of your ability until he returns or you're called away in death. Maybe you've done those things and you realize, you know, I've really not given the thought, I've really not taken serious enough the sacrifice that Christ made. Repent of that. Get yourself back in a right relationship with the Lord and serve him from today forward. I don't want to have any part of the wrath of God. Even as it's described mildly in what we read in the scriptures. I mean, that's very mild when we read that. That's not really scary. Unless you sit down and you think about what's really went on. I don't want to have the wrath of God upon me. Not for one hour, not for three hours, and certainly not for eternity. We're going to sing this hymn of imitation this morning. I must tell Jesus... And he's the one that the new covenant set up that we tell to. He's the one that we confess and ask forgiveness of. He's the intercessory for us. We're going to sing this hymn of invitation. If you have a decision to make, would you come as we stand and sing the first and the second verse? Mm -hmm. 